All right. Well, for, off the bat, I, I, I feel like I asked you this last time, but how is your environment so pitch black? Where are you right now? Are you under a, are you under a blanket? I'm in an actual cave. Uh, yeah. No, I'm in a room, but it, it does feel like I'm under a blanket. I'm under about 10 blankets. Uh, someone, you know, because I'm doing recording at the moment. Uh, someone told me, look, if you can do nothing else, just like record it inside of a closet. Yeah. Uh, failing that, create a closet out of a room. And uh, it's hard because I get screens and the audio reflects and stuff, but. I like to think that you are in a cave just working on amazing educational content at all times. So my Oz is always in a in a small cave, which is funny too, because I love that you called it a cave. I also call this the cave. Uh, I'm calling this place the NAND cave, and it's my vintage computer library slash museum slash office. And I'm trying to get that to catch on, but uh, so far there haven't been many takers or adopters or people don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like you would. Oh, I mean, it's fantastic. It's classic, firstly, like to be in the garage or like the the office. I'm actually reading at the moment to get psyched up to teach operating systems. I'm I'm reading um, Brian Kernigan, you know, Brian Kernigan. Yeah. Uh, his, I, I think uh, I have a book here when I rated Bradfield. I think I have some Kernigan books. Oh, Probably cool. I'm, I'm glad it went to a good home. Australia, yeah um yeah he relatively recently wrote like a memoir basically and it's called unix a history and a memoir is that one of the books that you've got i i bought that one of my own but here it is yeah there yeah. you go yeah so i've been reading that recently and um he's got a photo there of uh, dennis ritchie's office at bell labs and it looks exactly like like yours basically just uh, maybe yeah. it's black and white i can't remember and uh the pile of books is a little bit higher than yours. And the vintage computer is actually vintage. Right? Well, <laughs> it's, it's of its time, maybe. Yeah. Have did you, you see that? The, uh, did you see the thing on Hacker News, which was, I think it was Brian Kernigan's uh, thesis. I skimmed it uh, last night. Thesis. Yes. So, it, it, so I think it was Kernigan's, but it was like the thesis was missing for years and they actually don't understand how it was possibly typeset with the current technology at the time. And the, it's like a whole academic paper on how this could could have possibly been produced. And the conclusion is we have no idea how this possibly was produced, but it was really fun trying to figure it out. Yeah, it, it actually came up in the book. Well, not that, but uh, okay. something that did come up in the book was that um, the justification that the, the Unix team, the nascent Unix team had for buying the computer that they needed to develop Unix further, because uh, do you know the the original story of uh, Ken Thompson uh, creating Unix so that he could play his space like lander game? Was, yeah, like they they were somehow able to justify getting some PDP nine or something. Walk me through that. I, I feel like I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. So originally, I mean, he was working on Multics, like a number of them. And they got burnt on that. And he wanted to keep working on an operating system. And Bell Labs was like, no, no more operating systems. We're just not doing that. And um, Koenigan's like, ah, they just didn't want to buy more computers. Like, it's not that they didn't like operating systems. They just didn't want to buy an expensive one. Anyway, so Ken Thompson ported a game that he had written for the expensive GE machine to some PDP-7 that he found lying around that no one cared about. But it was, it was yeah. literally a game, right? Like land the spaceship game. And yeah. um, 
in doing the port, he ended up writing a lot of the IO code because it had this like weird disk set up with a vertical disk that would spin off like if it spun too fast or whatever. So he wrote all this IO code. And at some point he was like, hey, I'm three weeks away from an operating system. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's another part of the story. But he eventually yeah. wrote the, the operating system basically as additions to this game or the IO oh, uh, stuff to support the game. Anyway, but as other people start to use it, they wanted a real computer. And the justification that they gave for it was that um, the uh, uh, Bell Labs at the time was writing a lot of patents. And I still don't know how to pronounce it. Patents? Patents? Patent. I would say patent. You say like patent. General. I'll say patent. Yeah, yeah, patent. Uh, patent sounds better. Yeah, so I mean, can... more to the Australians out there, I apologize. I'm going to yeah. say patents so that everyone else can understand me. Uh, Pat, uh, they were they were publishing something like a patent a day. They were just like obviously prolific um, innovators, and and patents have this like particular structure that they need, including like line numbers for every line and stuff like that. And they just couldn't typeset it, um, and so uh, so people were manually writing these things at a super high volume. And the Unix team was like, hey, like, if you let us use this computer, we'll write the typesetting software for the patents and it'll work out for everybody. Yeah. And um, and so they did that. And the patent people were using that computer during the day. And the Unix people were like breaking everything at night when the patent people had finished. Uh, so, wait, so they were able to justify the cost of the computer by saying you can use it for writing the patents? Well, no, they 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 weren't given budget to buy a computer. I think they basically overtook an existing computer um, that I may be getting the details slightly wrong, but this computer was purchased to do the patent writing, but then there was a company that was supposed to make the software and they didn't come through or it's going to take too long. And the Unix team was like, we'll just write the software. Just let us use your computer. Uh, and they did it overnight. But typesetting comes up all the time. Like Koenigan didn't know what to do at the labs or like he didn't feel like he was having much of an impact with the like graph partitioning algorithms or whatever that he was originally working on. And it was like, yeah, I'll do some typesetting stuff. So this was definitely one of the things I wanted to bring up because I have this paper uh, that I thought could be an interesting topic. But to dive into one thing, Bell Labs to me, it's this mystical land where amazing basic research was done. And for me personally, it's I'm very close to it because literally I grew up down the street from Bell Labs. Holmdel is right near Red Bank where I grew up. So I think obviously by the time I was up and running, it was like a place where we would like sneak and play hide and go seek as kids and things like that. Or people played golf on the dilapidated, no longer maintained uh, yard or whatever. But it was always sort of in the back of my head. And I even now I view it as this place where amazing stuff was done. But I'm wondering if I paint, I'm painting too rosy of a picture. So two things I was thinking about. One, like why have we been not been able to recreate Bell Labs in these skunk work places. It, like Google had Google X, like, can that possibly be done? And then the other thing I was thinking was, was it actually fun to be there? It seems like it was fun, but if you look at what Hamming and these, I feel like they would go home, go to dinner and then go back to the office and be there to midnight. And maybe they were there because they loved being there. But I was thinking, am I, one, I'm, I'm wondering, can we recreate this? And two, do I want to recreate this? Is this the life I want to lead if I could work there? I mean, absolutely, you want to work there. I want to work there. If, like, people like us or people who read the Hamming essay and have it resonate with them, 
fantasize yeah. about working at whatever the next Bell Labs is. Yeah. Uh, whether what you know, why can't people recreate it? That is the trillion dollar question. Like, and I say that number as a, a bit of a, an homage to Xerox Park, which is like the second big successful yeah. uh, research organization. And by Alan Kay's reckoning, I mean, not that he's not biased, but by Alan Kay's reckoning, the Xerox Park people, and we're talking about a much, much smaller group of uh, people over a much shorter period of time, like three or four years for their core research, created a trillion dollars worth of value for the yeah. world through basically inventing personal computing and 10 other things. And that is the second best research organization after ATM Bell. Like, it's crazy. And so obviously people are trying to recreate this and why it's not working, including when they hire Alan Kay uh, to do it. Yeah, exactly. Is Alan Kay still with us? I don't, I actually don't oh, know. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's very yeah, okay. So who does he I mean, work Bob for? Taylor is not with us. I don't, do you know who Bob yeah. Taylor is? He's, he's more of the like administrator ARPANET guy who then started park yeah yeah park. so sadly yeah. sadly was but okay. i mean bob taylor i think is one of those figures that is like really he should be known much better than he is uh he was at arpa um yeah. with with lick lighter and basically kind of implementing a lot of lick lighter's vision uh also bringing his own vision he was a tremendous judge of character and he chose a lot of the researchers to fund to develop the internet so yeah. he, he was responsible in large part for the internet being the internet, you know, because there was a project to bring together, to, to interconnect the existing networks. And like, there are many ways to approach that and many different people you could fund. And um, he, didn't, he didn't fund the obvious people all of the time. And so that was his judgment at, at ARPA. And then not long after that, He's running the one of the main groups, the, the group that really you and I care about at, at Xerox Park and does it again with personal computing. Right. So yeah. the internet and personal computing. And he's not a technical guy. Yeah, he's not, he's not an engineer. He's not he an just... engineer. He, he was just like a tremendous manager, tremendous judge of character. Um, and you know, right there, it's two of the most important innovations, creations of our of our period. So uh so yeah, I mean, Alan Kay is still around. Uh, yeah, so both of these places were they were spinning off these incredible ideas that like Bell Labs with the transistor information theory. It seems like this mystical place. Uh, and was it because Bell Labs had this? Is it truly because it had a natural monopoly and they could just like not care about this? And I'm thinking about this in light of Google has tried to. There's probably people at Google who've been playing with AI for a long time. But now for the first time, it feels like Google's bread and butter is at risk from some innovation to search. Why was Google not, maybe they, why were they not doing this basic research? Maybe they were. So I just bring it up. Like, I wonder if it can be recreated or are we too, are we beyond the era when we can do this kind of basic research? Is it hopeless for us? Should you and I start one of these things ourselves? I mean, it's always a mystery why this doesn't work out and different people have their, their different explanations, but Google absolutely is, explicitly was, maybe you'd still say is, uh, trying to, to do that. Like Google Brain, when it was called Google Brain, you know, on the label, it says <laughs> trying to be the next uh, AT&T. Uh, well, the next Bell Labs, not the next AT&T. Uh, and, uh, you know, modeled many things off that.
So why why that hasn't been working out? Unclear. They've scaled back their ambitions <laughs> since then. I don't know if that's a signaling to the markets kind of thing or what. Obviously, people leave spin out and the spin outs are more successful at doing the things like even OpenAI is an example of that, right? You have a bunch of people who leave this well-funded, very large organization, go to a well, also well-funded, very small organization and do the kind of work that they couldn't really do in the other context. It's hard to know. I mean, yeah, there's surely a lot of luck as well, which different people will attribute different factors to where we don't really know. Well, that I want to segue a little bit into Hamming because I think they're in addition to the sort of beautiful environment of this, of the sharing of ideas, the open door thing. One of the things he talks about, he goes, I want to go through all the traits that he thinks are interesting uh, or shared characteristics of people who've done great things, but there's a lot of sacrifices associated with this. Even Hamming, says he has some quip or something about his familial life, which he thinks he put second fiddle to his basic research. So that was the other lens on this, where maybe I'm viewing Bell Labs and Park through rosy tinted glasses, but also I'm obsessed with reading these books. And I don't think that these people would look back as fondly on this experience. And like, I really do think there was something magical here that I, maybe this, like, I want to be part of in some way. And I, I really wish I could. So that's why this essay, this is why this essay, like personally has affected me so much. The first thing I did want to ask you was, what is your personal connection to this talk? When we were doing the escaping web interviews, this was the number one most linked thing that came up. And maybe it was because it was relevant for those conversations where people were moving from basic web development to, into something more that they were more passionate about or more interested in. But I, Almost every time I was typing up the show, show notes, Hamming's article came about. So I was curious, where did you first encounter this? How did you learn about this? What's your... Was that because of you... me? Was I mentioning it? Or were oh, yeah. I mean, I certainly wasn't mentioning it. You kept bringing it up. Well, I think it... I mean, I've, I've shared it with a lot of people. And for some people, it's no big deal. And for some people, they reread it every six months or something and uh it like re-energizes them and it's it's a it's an influential piece that they they keep coming back to and i can just like sit down with someone and say hey are you working on the most important thing you can be and uh, yeah. they'll be like yes or no or whatever and it'll have some impact maybe but if richard hamming says that uh and if he says that in the context of like towards the end of his life having yeah. You know, I mean, he didn't, he was not a Nobel Prize winner, but like he got basically as close as you could be without getting one. I mean, he was just in the field that was. I feel like he assisted. He was, he was the assist for a lot of other people's Nobel Prize. He was, and he was a Turing Award winner. He just happened to be a, in a field where you get a Turing Award instead of a Nobel Prize. Um, but for him to say something like that, it's more, it's more compelling. So uh, I think that's why I, I reference it. It's like, here are some things that are better said than uh, the way that I'm going to say it. But is ultimately, this, you... and can I can I quickly connect it to, to a theme that you're bringing up about like yeah, yeah, work-life balance and the sacrifice and so on? Yes. I think one, one of the key points that he's making is that the unexamined life is not worth living. Obviously, not the first person to make that point. Probably every generation is going to have someone saying that loudly in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, look, you can examine your life and say, hey, the set of trade-offs that I want to make is this. Uh, I want to have a family and I want I want to have like 
this kind of family life and um, this amount of productive life. Uh, but in that context, like you, you can be frank with yourself about that, about the trade-offs you are willing or not willing to make, and then make the most of your productive life and make the most of your family life. And that's very different to someone who is not examining their own life mm -hmm. uh, and you know, kind of taking a haphazard approach to both. Like you see people who are terrible at family and terrible at, at work and productivity. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of proof that you could be the opposite, good at, at both, you know, at least to an extent. Well, I'm not saying you, you like can be absolutely world-class at everything at once. No, the compromises are real, but like it's, it, they're not direct trade-offs. They don't have to be direct trade-offs. And one of the main variables, one of the main levers that you have is self-examination. Um, yeah. being honest with yourself and that i think that's his core point now obviously he has chosen a set of trade-offs or he had chosen a set of trade-offs that led him more towards novel research and less towards other aspects of his life but i think step one is self-examination yeah and it rereading it it does feel as if he knew this very early even when he joined bell labs he was thinking about how did uh sitting down and asking people what are the important problems in your space are you working on those things or looking at productive people and trying to understand that? And it does feel like he innately knew that. And he was doing that from the start, which I, in my own personal experience, I have sometimes I have to be reminded of it. I, I do think I'm fairly self-reflective, but I still, I'm one of those people who appreciates new year's resolutions. And I know a lot of people knock them, but there's this sort of global collective thing that it's okay to do self-examination this one time of year you know, the gym is filled with people and then maybe they fall off the train and people get frustrated by it. I'm just happy that more people at least attempt to do what Hamming probably does instinctively every day when he wakes up in the morning. And yeah, it's better than not time. doing it, right? No, totally. Um, and so I, I do love rereading this uh, every, every now and again because of that. I don't know that I've necessarily figured out what my great work is. And that, I did also want to ask you, uh, if you were being self-reflective, um, what do you like, do you, is your mission to do great work in science, in computer science, or I could also ask it the other way. Like, uh, you've talked about important problems in your space and we'll say your space is computer science. So you can take that either way, but how have you taken this essay and applied it to your own life? I could, I could also answer myself, but I want to hear you because you're the one who introduced it to me. I feel, I feel like I'm pretty early in my journey of self-reflection and you know, that sucks. I wish that I'd more, I had more figured out when I was 25 or 18 or something, but like, so be it. I can't, I don't know, you play computer games. I'm sure you've got this instinct of like, oh, I just want to start the level again. Like I want to, I want to do it again, but better from the beginning. Yeah. So be it. But where I am now, uh, I, my field is not computer science. It is computer science education. Yeah. That has been a major realization for me. And I still get FOMO when I see people doing basic computer science research and i i envy them i and uh, i think that's fantastic and uh but i'm like i'm not ever going to be on a road to a turing award and uh i'm not ever going to be on a road i don't think to like a novel advancement to computer science that's i don't know i don't want to sell myself short i think like if i were to retire from teaching tomorrow and then spend a couple of decades on on something maybe like i can push the the edge of the field a little bit but it's not i'm i'm not on that that path and that's not and that's not my thing but in terms of computer science education 
I, th I think that w the where I'm well placed and the kind of impact that I can have is in particularly bringing first class CS education to people who didn't know at the age of 18 that they wanted to major in CS. That's basically yeah. it. so that's not like yeah, it's not like being a, a professor at Stanford who also has a, a mission in CS education. Um, but it is about bringing CS to a large number of people. And that's really, I mean, that's been, that's been Bradfield at a certain scale. And now with CS Primer, it's about getting to another scale. And the thing that I think about as like the most important problem that I could feasibly tackle myself is, uh, I'm not going to say solving the two Sigma problem, uh, but like trying to get the efficacy of one-on-one -on -one tutoring to as many people as possible in the area. What is two, what is the? I feel like I've heard of two. What's the two sigma problem? Yeah. yeah. So uh, the this is a there's a particular paper by Bloom called the two sigma problem, where basically uh, looking at different interventions in education. I mean, firstly, in education, nothing works. Like nothing that is easy that is easy to research works. And even when something like you think that it works, you really interrogate, you run a big study, and it's hard to, to prove decisively and convincingly for a lot of people who maybe just they're just skeptics, but inter education interventions don't work generally. Uh, and that's why people end up doing like space repetition and stuff, because it's like this, there's this nugget of something there that you can objectively say works. And so they go yeah. overboard with that. That's another topic. But the Bloom's Two Sigma paper, basically says that one-on-one -on -one tutoring is very effective. The two sigmas yeah. is two standard deviations. And so two standard deviations better than a classroom uh, teaching environment. And it's like, it's kind of obvious that if you have a tutor sitting down with you, asking you good questions, prompting you on things, you're going to learn way better than if someone's blurting out stuff in a classroom environment. Right? Okay, so why, Charlie, why isn't everyone learning via one-on-one -on -one tutoring? It's, just, it's expensive and it's expensive. The tutors, there's not enough yeah it's not it's not enough and i mean back in the day when we had geniuses i mean this is a, a kind of idea that was explored recently by a few people back in the day when we had geniuses which we don't have anymore apparently according to these people uh it, it was because they they got a lot of tutoring it was like an aristocratic tutoring uh experience for the people who became geniuses and yeah. uh and now we have this situation where everyone goes through some kind of mainstream education process, typically, and um, it's more egalitarian and we don't have geniuses anymore. Anyway. The two sigma, we can link to that and people can make up their own mind. It's the interesting yeah. set of articles. Uh, the, the two sigma problem is how can you find a technique uh, that scales better than one-on-one -on -one tutoring that's as effective? And this is the holy grail for a lot of people in education. Uh, it's like, how can I find something? And obviously, if you're a software engineer, you're like, oh, I'll write algorithms for this. Uh, there's an AI that can do this. Uh, space repetition can do this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's all wrong to some extent, but the, the objective is still sound. It's like, we know that one-on-one tutoring works. Can we find some way to have an experience that's somewhat like that. And Bloom felt that he had a solution to this as well. 
Okay, um, so it wasn't just an overview of the space. There was a suggested approach. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of vague, but it's it's he suggests mastery learning. And this is why a lot of people are, are all about mastery learning and this idea that you don't move on from one topic until it's mastered and so on. Um, and so there's a kind of hypothesis there of a solution and, uh, you know, implementation, <laughs> implementation details are kind of vary. Um, but uh, for me, it's like, can I, can I, can I construct resources? Can I set up a learning environment for somebody through both like crafting my demos and, uh, and explanations and so on, but, but also, you know, as a software engineer, by creating an interactive environment for them that look, it's not going to be as good as sitting down one-on-one -on -one with me, but how yeah. close can I get? But did you thinking about the lens of Hamming again, if this is the great problem, this is a great problem in computer science education and probably all education, the two Sigma problem. Do you set that in your sites? Is this, Hey, I'm Oz. I think I could potentially make a decent attempt at this. I have an attack vector or this great problem, or is, is it, you know, I could also imagine another angle here is I think I can do something that is net better than the current situation. And there's also a market for it. And maybe I'll figure out something along the way where like probably there's, there's a different end of the spectrum, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. How do you think about that? Yeah. So I'll give you two other people's framings for these. One is okay. Hammings uh, and one yeah. is Michael Nielsen's. I'm saying that now in case I forget the second. Okay. Yeah. So Hammings approach is to say, maybe you remember from the, from the talk or the paper uh, that uh, you need to be working on great problems, but the people who decide to only work on great problems also struggle. You remember how he talks about Nobel Prize winners and is saying, well, they once they get the Nobel Prize, they no longer yeah. do good work because they only allow themselves to do the important, the important, or they're thing. put on, or they're put on committees, which or, is, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you know, and and um, uh, Feynman also spoke about this where he like started to get some recognition. This is before he was a Nobel Prize winner. Started to get some recognition. And and told himself that he could only work on important on on important matters and uh, burnt out on that. And uh, do you know the story of the spinning plates? Is it, this is a fantastic. Is this, in, is this in Shirley or joking? I read it many years ago, so I don't. I don't, I don't actually remember. Yeah, what the what if where where is collected? But uh, he he tells this story of how like he was totally burnt out and he was just like idly in the like Princeton dining room or something. I don't remember. It was like watching a plate wobble as it spun in the air and just kind of fixated on that problem and allowed himself to go down that path yeah. as a kind of break from the serious work. And um, in trying to understand that plate wobbling or inspired by that in some way, uh, he, this eventually led to a sequence um, of discoveries that ultimately gave him the, the Nobel Prize. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, there's a, that playfulness. That's also from what I've read of Shan Shannon. He, I mean, Shannon's. Yeah. The, yeah, Shannon is the the great example of this as well. Also, like you know, playfulness and extreme, and just enjoyed tinkering, and that's what led to his success. And Ken Thompson, we were talking about writing a game, and that ends up being Unix. Uh, like the way that Ken Thompson puts it, actually, this came up in the the Koenigan book as well. Is like. Uh, this period was fantastic. I was a workaholic. I had no objectives. 
like, what does that mean to be a workaholic with no objectives? He like just shows up. He's having fun all the time. He doesn't want to do anything but work, but he doesn't have goals. But he know he probably Hamming would say he's aware of the problems in the space. So if you are reflective on the great problems and the opportunities, and then give yourself this breathing room to be playful and let your subconscious come out, that's where that magic is happening. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it's it's a kind of contradiction, right? Hamming's like, uh, why aren't you working on the most important problem in your field? However, the people who are only working on the most important problems don't do any good work. And the yeah. the framing that he gives for it is like, you need to be dealing with the acorns, but the acorns that are capable of growing into the tree. You need to be, you need to be like in don't work the on realm. Don't work on teleportation is what he says. Right, exactly. Like it, it's got to be something that can bear fruits eventually, but you can't attack it head on. You know, you need to be uh, kind of playing with ideas. And, you know, your question was about me and playing with the ideas. I think for me to attack it head on, that would be like what a lot of people are doing. What is the neural net or, you know, now large language model that would provide, that would create the young lady's illustrated primer as imagined in sci-fi? I yeah. think you're bound for failure if you attack it head on like that. Maybe that maybe we're getting to the point where that's a feasible way to do it. But but my approach is to say, look, what can I ship next year, or realistically next month that gets us one step closer, right? Maybe that's 0.3 of a personal tutor or 0.35 of a personal tutor. It's not aiming straight for 0.95 of a personal tutor, yeah. um, but people can use it. You can use it now. Uh, and I'll, so, and I mean, I'll iterate. Spoiler, I was going to say, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for that book. I do feel, if I recall the plot correctly, the the young girl doesn't have a robot at the other end. She has a human being. And that's the only difference. That's why it worked. She does. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, we don't want to spoil the book for people. But it is it is interesting that many people, including myself, have some like spark of inspiration from the book. And yeah. then uh, there's a, yeah, there's an, the, read, I need read, the book. <laughs> read the book. I need to read the book. I talk about it. Okay. Um, so do you, I feel like. Uh, let me give the Michael Nielsen framing, which I think is useful as well. Uh, Michael Nielsen framing is what is the hardest problem that you could feasibly see yourself solving? Solve that. Right. So it's like, uh, you you want to do this like let's say you tell me tomorrow um i want to uh get into computer engineering and i want to create the next big uh computer architecture um yeah. that does i don't know machine learning inference or whatever cool huge problem lots of people are working on it at different levels uh it's a frontier okay charlie there's some problem that for you is as hard as you could imagine, but that you think that you could still solve it, uh, like in in some feasible time frame. Like you have some plan to solve that problem. Maybe yeah. for you right now, that you know, that's that's something that a lot of people have done previously, but that you haven't done before, or that like you know is spelled out in a book or something, but you haven't done yet. Um, so that's your problem that you work on, and you don't work on other things. And you don't like read other people's stuff about that. You try and solve it yourself. So is this a near-term suggestion? Nielsen says you should think of something in one to three years, or is it 10 years after you've done sub goals along the way? 
I'm not sure if he's that concrete about it. Um, I mean, you can ask him, but uh, I think it's basically it. Like, don't get fixated on the, the the hard problem in its hardest form. Also, don't faff about reading tutorials or whatever. Like, actually work on a problem. Like, mm -hmm. a hard problem, hard for you problem. And so I think it's just a kind of framing that gets you out of the two failure modes. Uh, and Hamming, I think, is identifying the two failure modes. One is not working on important problems at all. That's, yeah. that's you know, the story when he sits down with the chemist and it's like, if what are the important problems in your field and why aren't you working on them? He's trying to get them out of the failure mode of just not, just on a path to nowhere. Um, but also the failure mode of, oh, now I'm a Nobel Prize winner. I can only work on important problems. It's uh, finding a middle ground there. Yeah, I, one thing that Hamming was talking about was the sort of, modesty that we feel as if we have to present to the public in terms of our ambition. And when you're a kid, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an inventor. And then you lose that in the same way that when you're a politician in a movie, you cannot, you can't say you're running for president. You have to have the, the opportunity was thrust upon me and I stepped up and I embraced it. So we don't really if someone actually put their heart on their sleeve and said, I wanted to achieve this great thing, most people are going to tear that down, which is pretty unfortunate. Or I think it is at least contributing to why more people aren't being self-reflective with these ambitious goals. Yeah, I was reflecting on this from a different lens recently because I read something by someone um, uh, kind of framing people, entrepreneurs specifically, as either insiders or outsiders. There are like mm. the insider entrepreneurs who are very charismatic and good looking and and networked, connected, and public. Uh, they're on they're on media all the time and like they're they're effective and they, they run their company as well and they're successful in part because of the networking and the kind of public presence and so on. And then there are the outsider entrepreneurs who sometimes are also very effective. And the example that he gave of that was uh, Naval, Naval Ravikant, um, mm -hmm. Angelist. And, um, but they're on the fringes. They're not well connected. They're not using their social networks to win. They're like going off in a, into their caves and figuring things out. And um, they're, uh, they're like, they're contrarians, not to be contrarians, not to be contrary intentionally, but they just happen to be uh, against the kind of social social forces. Um, so I, do I think that like this is this is an aspect where the insiders are are compelled to um, display a kind of modesty where maybe like they can entertain this contradiction where internally they know that they have much more ambition than they than they're showing. When you're talking about like running for president and whatever and saying it's, it was thrust upon them. I think that they need to maintain this like exterior view of of modesty because with the like public presence um, and kind of network connection that uh, they're maintaining, they need to to have these illusions. Whereas outsiders can just screw it and say, <laughs> "I don't, I don't really care what you think of me and what what I'm doing because my success is not going to come through that anyway." Uh, but you can posture as an outsider. You can that itself could be an insider move to say, I'm a disruptor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're very so good at that kind of thing. <laughs> Impersonating the outsiders when they need to be. I mean, you can tell, right? Yeah. That said, I do feel as if you mentioned Naval, outsider. Um, he Maybe these outsiders are also able to tap into some other pulse because 
I feel as if he in particular has a group of people who eat his every word on Twitter. And he's, yeah, he's an me, alpha outsider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's uh, he's almost a philosopher at this point. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people like that. I mean, the ultimate alpha uh, alpha philosopher. I mean, also philosopher, but alpha outsider is what I'm trying to say. Did you say Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know enough to to comment. Okay. Yeah, and that's Jesus, my but, school bringing, but yeah. But at least, uh, at least in terms of, um, well, yeah, I mean, organized religion is a very interesting frame to look at that through because there are certain religions that used to be insider religions that are now outsider religions, like Catholicism seems like that now. Um, but I don't know enough about no. religions to talk about that. But in, in technology, it's Peter Thiel, right? It's, it's like, he's so far outside of the mainstream or even elon musk like he's not an insider uh he's not like connected politically um as far as i can tell he's not able to achieve things through that kind of use of network he doesn't have influence in politics you know at, at the federal or state level lots of things go against him um despite his massive but, but when he tweets congress people respond so it this outsider route is a way to get through all the bs over here and if you can pull off the outsider route that is another way to amass power so he's been able to do that and i would say he's power he's incredibly powerful as a result yeah i don't know i mean he's also in a position where he could get easily uh attacked and shut down and um you know like if you saw the FTC coming after, like just spuriously coming after his companies or something, that's not going to come as a surprise, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, compare it to the tech people. I mean, basically everyone in technology is an outsider, but there are people like um, uh, Mark Benioff, for instance. Like, why do you never hear ba bad things about Salesforce? Like, why is there negative, never negative press against Salesforce? Or I just wish they I wish they would put more interesting things on the tower. They're, yeah, that is an opportunity for greatness, and it's often just this weird dancing silhouette. And I, I feel that's a major missed opportunity. Anyway, this is, this stuff is all an aside, but it, it is an interesting uh, lens to look at this kind of thing. And uh, some people are just more inclined towards. I mean, I realize that I'm an, I'm going to be a lifelong outsider. I have no yeah. interest in being an insider. I have no road to being an insider um and uh so for me to embrace like just doing things on the fringes and having my work speak for itself and not trying to like you know realizing that there are certain things certain industries that I'm never going to be able to work in um successfully or at a first class level just because it's an insider kind of thing it makes it, it just a kind of simpler for me to live my life when you're introducing this concept to your students talking about having them think about the problems in their space and or maybe you know, you mentioned your your sweet spot are the folks who didn't know they were going to be an engineer at 19 and are now trying to go deep on computer science. What are the areas that do you have to suggest areas to them? I remember at least when we were talking about this a while ago, you were saying augmented reality would be an interesting area to dive into and invest in. This is a big opportunity. Do you feel like you have to serve up different areas? Do people sometimes surprise you with saying, oh, I really want to go deep on gaming or something? Uh, I'm just curious how much you feel like you have to present that up to people or if people uh, have preconceived notions about what they want to go deep on already. I think most people have preconceived notions and I, I usually encourage them to keep pursuing that. 
Um, sometimes um, I just have a little bit of information maybe about what the reality of that might look like. Um, so if someone tells me that they're interested in security, I've got a sense of like what it takes to be world-class in that area, like who those people are and how that maybe is different to where they are um, that maybe it's worth knowing about. Because, I mean, it's not to say that everyone needs to be world-class, but at least they should go in there. Again, self-examined, uh, unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. Uh, if they go in there thinking that they're going to do the novel work and they're, they're going to be the next person to jailbreak the iPhone or equivalent, uh, you know, they should have a, a sense of what that's going to take and where they're on the path. It's just like probably you meet people, we all meet people who want to write the next great American novel, right? Uh, I, that, I mean, that's my current obsession. I work in, we can talk about that later. Work in oh, we got to talk about that because you're a great example of that. Like how many people would you meet who you're like, oh, what do you plan to do when you retire? I'm going to write a novel. What have you written so far? Absolutely nothing. Have you written a short story? No. Do you have a blog? No. Do you edit your emails before you send them? No. You're going to write the not. next big novel? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's your retirement plan. You're going to, that's that's your dream, your fantasy. If you won the lottery, you're going to write a novel and you haven't written like three intentional sentences. <laughs> you know, it's well, like, I, yeah. So and I'm not saying my students are like that at all. It's just like some people, when they say I'm interested in security, they're like, well, I took a month off work. Over the month, I couldn't stop myself. I, I kept doing this and this and this, and I'm not like at the edge of the field by any means, but I discovered this thing that's interesting to me that other people don't know about. And I'm excited about this and I couldn't stop doing this. That's one thing. If people are like, I'm interested in security, uh i've not spent a weekend exploring what that is i'm like let's be real about where you're going to sit in the kind of not hierarchy but in the the map of people who are working in security where you're going to be totally you want to be where are you already tugging strings where are you spending your weekend what are you what are the articles you're reading like those are the things that you may not have realized that you have this innate interest in but those like you shouldn't you shouldn't not explore those yeah. And I mean, look, if you decide to go into that field and just like hope for the best in terms of what your experience is going to be like, so be it. It's still going to be decent work. It's better than quitting your job to become an author, not having tried that before. You're probably not going to end up in a good, <laughs> a good place if you do that. With software I, engineering, there's always a soft landing, at least at the moment. There's always somewhere that's like close. I don't, I'm not so sure. It's it's looking rough out there, the market-wise. It does oh, feel... I mean, yeah, we'll we'll see what it's like. I mean, even month to month, it seems to be changing a lot. But at least you're a lot better. There's always web dev, <laughs> at least for now. And um, yeah. uh, you know, there are just so many well enough paid opportunities, proximate enough to what you're trying that there's probably going to be something. It's it's very low risk relative to. I think I want to uh, be a metal worker or something. And to learn to weld, yeah. and if you don't like welding, like where do you end up? Uh, one thing I was, I've been thinking about: you mentioned you had one student who said they went on this Carmack-style self-imposed retreat, which made me think around a failure mode of mine is often: once I have this iPad, then I'll be ready to do my writing project, or once I have set up the NAND cave and I've perfected my environment, and there's all this 
theater around your personal setup that prevents you from doing it. Um, that is a failure mode of mine. And another is I, I, I don't have the luxury of going away on a Carmack style retreat these days or not anytime soon. And maybe I've mentally prevented myself from finding ways to carve time out of my day every day to log some writing. And I'm in this big revision phase for my novel. My quick status update on that was I was one of those people who wanted to do this and had never written a word of fiction at all, but literally. Um, and I did National Novel Writing Month finally and sat down and finally did it, turned it into this big bloated thing that I was editing and editing and editing, and then just realized it wasn't very good. So I spent all of last year with this project where I made this self-imposed weekly cadence where every week I'm going to write a different short story, Saturday to Saturday, no matter what, even if I only have 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or I have time to edit it over two days or three days, I was going to do it. And that sort of habit-based trigger thing where it gave me this timeline and I also allowed myself to remove the stakes. There are no gatekeepers here. It doesn't matter if it's good. It is just me getting things out of my head and putting it down. That was, I've never written more in my entire life. And now that I've stopped that, I fell off a cliff. And I'm, my thought was, I'm going to go back. And now I'm, after I've written these 52 stories, I've gotten better at writing. I've realized my mistakes. Now let me go back and dive into editing this thing that's been in the shelf. And I've been struggling. I really have not written much. And it was three days ago. Is there ago. something that's halfway between a short story and editing your old novel? I so well, Some of the short stories were pieces from my novels where I was thinking, uh, oh, this is an unexplored thread. Let me write the backstory for this character, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. That was helpful. But I'm now in this, uh, well, I was going to say, now I've done this thing where I made a spreadsheet and I'm going to log how many hours or words per day I'm working on it. And I don't know, I just, I, I maybe I'm the kind of person who needs that time pressure deadline to make sure that I carve stuff out. Because if I don't do that, things fill the day. But if I have this, if I allow myself to say, or I force myself, you need to do some tiny bit, you'll do it. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's I, interesting. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm currently writing an article about consistency because uh, like I, I say to people to be successful with this program, CS Primer specifically, you want to find a way to do it consistently. And people reply, like, how do I be consistent? Like, what is the way? Do you have suggestions for being consistent? So I'm writing an article about that. And the interesting thing is that a lot of people have, a lot of very successful people have specific things that they do. So-and-so wakes up early, like I wake up early, wake up early, do focused work, get it done, and then you can do other stuff later in the day. Uh, and you look at that and you're like, oh, cool. Maybe if I also wake up early, maybe if I also set my alarm for four o'clock or whatever, uh and sleep in for an hour and then start at five then uh then i'm going to be successful like that but then you find people who do the opposite thing like uh i there was a, a barrister who i used to work with who was exceptionally good and and shouldn't have been like he was he came from a different track basically and um and i was like how did you get to be this effective and it's like oz every night after work and he you know he was working i don't know if he was working as a solicitor or a junior barrister whatever i go home pour myself a glass of wine and read the case law it's like he's doing the hard work but he's doing it at eight o'clock or something 
you know, a couple of a couple of glasses of wine in. It's very different to waking up at 4 a.m. Anyway, all that's to say, like, it is probably true that you need to find specific ways to be consistent. It is not going to work for you to, like, find other people's ways of achieving consistency and just doing that. Um, but being self-reflective maybe of what's working or just doing more of whatever's working maybe it I mean, believe me i've read every on writing book by stephen king and every other writer and there isn't like hamming would find this pattern where they wake up and probably the first thing they do every day is that they write 500 to a thousand words or they just sit butt in seat and even if they don't write a word they're thinking about it and they set this clock and if i don't write a word it doesn't matter i've allowed myself to do this and even Hemingway did this when he was in Paris, he would write in the morning and then in the afternoon he would get drunk and go bet on horses and whatever and have this whole day, but he was always there in the morning. So I would love to do that. It, my daughter wakes up before me now. So it becomes, uh, I've lost my, my, I used to call them puttering mornings, which that's, I mean, I, I love that. I don't want to miss that, but I, I've needed to readjust where I can carve out time for this thing that is very important to me. I want to have a published book. And if I think about having talked about mantras, I want to be a published author. I want to be a great published author. I will say that even if that's embarrassing to say, sure. but it can be. I want to be, and I, I need to remind myself of that and find ways to be consistent. Let's, let's uh, role play some of the stuff that we were talking about. So Charlie, um, do you think it is feasible, likely for you to write a novel now or to edit the novel that you wrote? And for this to be your big successful novel, or is that is that too big of a goal right now? No, I, I think I that is a doable goal. Okay, why is it then that you're finding it hard to achieve consistency at working towards that goal? I feel stuck. I feel as if I'm too attached to certain things. In fact, I will give you a slight detail. One of the things that I've gotten some feedback on is that the book is too big and it's too vast. And I've put too much of things that are interesting to me. And I haven't, I haven't thought about the story enough for the characters. And I think I need to, the takeaway I've had is I need to kill my darlings a little bit. And I actually accepted this, this other day, I decided I'm getting rid of this entire backstory where there was this company called the iteration corporation, which was an early computer company that started out with a, it was like a shelling thing that de-shelled these, uh, uh, what was it called? Oysters. And they had this big drum and I was like, and that turned into drum-based memory. It was this nonsense that I had pulled in from reading all about computer history. And I thought to myself, this, I'm trying to write books for children. This is a, this is kind of fun, but I spend way too much time on this and I pulled it out. And I think by killing that darling, I can have this in the back of my mind, but it doesn't have to tie me to this. And I think that there are more things like that. Now, one thing that some other author writers might say is just move on to another book, start fresh with that. But I, I, I don't want to give up. I put so much time into this. I, I love my characters. I think there is a compelling story here. I want to make this work, or I at least want to give another honest try. And maybe, maybe I'm being self-defeatist because in part of my mind, I think maybe it won't work. And I, in a year's, I'll, in a year's time, I'll realize this wasn't the right project and I should move on because every time you write, you get better, hopefully. So I'm worried I've maybe pre-failed in my mind. And I and what I'm doing now is just dragging my feet before pre-failure. I mean that it it kind of sounds like that to me, where it's uh 
like this seems like too big of a thing and part of you knows that it's not yeah. going to work out yet and so that's what gives you the reluctance like if you were energized you would I don't know when your daughter wakes up but like time is is a cycle right there's always an earlier uh, yeah and so uh you could be waking up energized to write and you're not and to me that's not about like you don't have the right habit you don't have the right alarm clock or whatever you should go to bed dressed in your work clothes or your gym clothes or whatever it's not the tactical stuff uh to me it's like what is the driving motivation what is undermining that and if you've got a thought that's like this is too big or it's too unlikely whatever you need to reframe it so what michael nielsen says is the hardest feasible problem so yeah. you know may i don't know writings maybe for you it's like is there a short story version of this where it's uh it's like more more polished and uh is there's a like publication goal is there a particular publication that you can aim for for a short story not a novel is there like a, a piece of writing that captures the essence of what you loved about the, the book that's not going to work out yet um that can be in a shorter form that hack and use or whatever is going to read and that's probably the wrong audience you're, you're going to know that better than me but I'm trying to give an example of like what's an intermediate goal where you can get jazzed about that and ultimately you've got to say like what is the goal which if I had it as a goal I would wake up excited tomorrow before my yeah. daughter wakes up even if it's just an hour before and did one hour of excited work towards this goal at the moment it's not editing your old novel is it no is... it, that was that was the project last year I was excited to get up and write that story every week hmm. yeah I'm taking some notes here <laughs> but obviously you've done the 52 I mean that's that's tremendous firstly congratulations on that like to me that is facing this failure mode head on no one else like rounded to the closest percent zero percent of people who want to write novels write a short story and you wrote 52 of them in a year fantastic yeah. like you really attacked that and solved it okay yeah. so now you're on to the next thing the next thing is not write a short story it is write a short story that's read by a hundred people or a thousand people or that's published in this location yeah. yeah it's not yet a novel for you it seems like um uh, it, it's it's some it's something smaller yeah the other failure mode I have in the back of my mind is you know I could just self-publish this thing and to me that especially doesn't work because the thing I'm trying to write ideally is a book for kids because I'm a kid at heart I like I, this is how I fell in love with reading that's the story I think it's and I think kids maybe they are but I don't think they're going online and buying books the way if I was self-publishing a computer science book that's perfect people do that all the time um so I I think that's another failure mode in the back of my mind where I said you know if if I can't get any bites from publishers I'll just put this thing on Amazon direct boom there we go and I'm done and part of me wonders should I just try to edit it enough where I'm not totally embarrassed and put that up there and have it done as a finalized project and move on or should I really try to spend my time on this? And I don't want this to be a, ten, I, I don't want this to turn into the novel that I've been writing for 10 years, which yeah, I mean, again, I don't know writing, but, but maybe like, let me imagine the equivalent with uh, some programming work, um, put it on the back burner and say, I'm going to return to it in, in specific circumstances. Um, like it's there, it's ready for me to go. 
actually CS Primer was exactly like this for me. I did the first release four years ago. I, re I vaguely did, remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And then did, you know, did no work on it for a period of time because I was working on other things and the time, the timing wasn't right, but I, I always let myself have that as a thing, as an objective to get back to. And now I'm back with a vengeance and everything's fine. Awesome. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe you can do something like that with your novel where it's like, it's, it's not an abandonment. It's not a completion. I'm going to put it on the back burner in an intentional way. And I'm going to revisit it when I do X. Right. And yeah. maybe and it, like, again, it's about what is the motivation that will get you to consistency. I think yeah. the, the people fixate on the tactics of consistency, but it's like, what is the thing that I would love to do? Like that Ken Thompson obsessed over and became a workaholic with no objective. Uh, it's like, what you know, for him, it was making a game which turned into Unix. Um, for you, it's uh, it's something. It's like, it, it doesn't need to be such a big objective that you get paralyzed by it. Um, but it needs to be a, in Hamming's framing an acorn that you can plant. So maybe it's like, I don't know, Charlie, do you have a sense of who the best agents are in this, in this area? I, I've done a little bit of digging, yeah. I have a spreadsheet. So what if the goal is like, I want one of these five agents to read a short story of mine and have a positive response? Yeah. Is something like that a feasible goal? Yeah, I think so. I, it, it, one, it is hard to get agents' attention. They, If we think that our email inboxes are inundated with various things, especially maybe now with LLMs, allowing people to auto-generate short stories. In fact, Many short story publications have stopped accepting submissions. I heard about that. Yeah. That's the challenge. Maybe that's the wrong challenge. Again, I don't know writing, but something, no, like, so, something like that is like, okay, that's, that's a lot more doable than get this novel to a point where you're satisfied with it, right? Where, where it's as successful, you know, where an agent picks it up, a publisher picks it up, it gets yeah. published it gets read and appreciated that's a that's a much bigger thing than agent reads a thousand words that i wrote and likes it and says hey you know i'd be happy to read the next thing you send me wouldn't that be a fantastic thing to achieve and don't you think you can do it like after having done 52 short stories you can do that i know you well can. yeah i think the thing that excited me about the short story project was that each one of them was this unique acorn that it didn't matter if this was a giant acorn or a weird acorn or doesn't even look like an acorn. And I could just be weird and just let that happen. Whereas I think this traditional publishing process is there is a form. You have to do things in a certain way. It has to be, it even has to be formatted in a certain way. There's a rigidity to this that I think I've been, uh, put off by because my initial outreaches haven't been well received, even though they were probably not well received for good reason. But the things I wrote down, becoming a workaholic for no objective, there are so many things I do that for. I'm never bored. I can I can tinker on a million things, even like I want to dive in and do more CS primer. I want to actually make some shelves so this doesn't look like a disaster. I just bought some sourdough stuff because I want to do the sourdough sort. There's a million things that I love tinkering on. My word is always puttering. That's my, my, what my wife says. I think I want the writing project to return to the point, like you said, where I, I wake up and it's like, okay, I got to go do this. And I think I can do that. Um, and I've got some ideas now.
don't abandon the podcast for that i mean i mean oh, I, 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 this is i'd rather this is, yeah. i'd rather there not be a podcast and you you know achieve your goals charlie honestly like totally honestly uh, no i i, I know you mean, <laughs> but we just did the we're just doing the first one now like can't you can't you achieve self-actualization like in a few months or whatever can we afford of this uh no i would i I basically, I'm so happy you agreed to do this because I'm one, I'm tricking, I'm getting alpha content from you. Like I'm getting the pre-article on consistency before everyone else in the world does. And then two, you can just advise me on the things that are troubling me in my creative pursuits. So don't well, worry. We can always that. do this. We can do this in the afternoons. If you find a morning focus habit, that's, that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, I haven't done a PhD, but my what I've seen from PhD advisors is that they're generally not very useful. Uh, they can like help trigger some way of thinking um, yeah. that that ends up being useful, like only in retrospect. Like they don't actually know what's going on, um, but uh, they don't know what's going on with the research. And the way Michael Nielsen talks about it is like as a PhD advisor, um you like you're just waiting for people to come to you with good ideas and all you can really say is did you have a good idea since we last spoke uh yeah, anyway yeah so the, i'll be um, like that with you like uh, charlie perfect. did you have a good idea about how to make progress on your writing great i that gives me that gives me a deadline and i already said i like deadlines the your comment about phd made me think of a book and i don't really have a story associated with this but i'm also curious if you read the Idea Factory. We know that there's that Idea Factory book by Gertner about Bell Labs, but there's another book called Idea Factory, which oh, is yeah. it's someone's personal story about being a graduate student at MIT. And good lord, that is a rough experience. And it's really it's really good. It's well written, but uh, academia for many reasons does not seem like a uh, a happy place to be. Oh no, it seems it seems catastrophically bad very low chance of success like perceived as very high status so if you're not that into status then you got to trade off a bunch of stuff in order for the i mean basically it it doesn't work out on balance i mean i think about the same thing because so many of my friends are lawyers um and law as a field just it doesn't the equation doesn't work out like okay you make some money but the it's a lot easier to make money in a lot of different in a lot of other ways, particularly if you're the kind of person who can, you know, be a partner in a law firm or something, you can you can do a lot of other things to make money in an easier way. Why is it that people are still drawn to law? And, you know, they're working very hard and burning out and the path to partner is also aggressive. Um, like not everyone, very few people get there. Uh, so why do people do it? And I'll tell you why I thought I had to, I was going to do it. And that I it was because I liked reading. And I have a loud voice and I thought, okay. And also my uncle is a lawyer who kind of reminds me of Atticus Finch. Uh, so the why are you not I, a lawyer after? Because I realized that was terrible. That was a terrible move. My, in my first job, I saw, I, we worked with lawyers. Um, this is my first job in finance and we worked with lawyers and I saw what they were doing and I, I ran away. So I'm very glad I didn't go down that route. Also, I had people a, who appreciate the status aspect of it, who'd like to be lawyers they like to be the person who is a lawyer uh it works out but you know if you do the math it's like uh you value the status at two hundred thousand dollars a year or something uh it's like well i guess you do you must um i don't and so i'm not gonna do that 
to what but there's an life. there's a similar aspect in academia now where people and you know it's a similar thing in the in game dev for instance like why do game devs get paid so much less than software engineers than web developers and work so much harder it's a similar kind yeah. of obviously not status in that case but it's a similar kind of thing where it's like you're willing to do this because working in games is in by its, its very nature something that's valuable to you and apparently about two hundred thousand dollars a year valuable when you do the math uh, so academia is a similar thing it's, it doesn't seem good for people who don't value part of the the equation my my reaction to this is that i feel as if some careers you are you're pot committed or you're stuck and you've gone too far down this route where there you can't perfectly switch and I, I was lucky because every time I hit three years in a given industry, I pulled the ripcord and allowed myself to start over from ground zero. And the, the third time I did that, it was into software engineering, which I've happily stayed ever since. But if you're a doctor, you I feel it as if you're a doctor, you've committed when you're probably age 18 and then you're not a doctor, I don't know, until you're 30. You've, you, uh, maybe it's sunken cost fallacy, but it feels a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, the sunk cost is a major sunk cost, you know, particularly if you're taking on student loans, debt. So, yeah, it's, right. it's tough for sure. Yeah, similar thing with lawyers, yeah. although not as bad. Yeah. Uh, one All other. Right, well, like, I, I, oh, you got something else? I got a lot of things. We got to, but do, do we want to break it up into separate? No, let me let me say one thing about the academia like part. I think a lot of us have FOMO about that um, because we see yes, such I, interesting work happen in academia. Um, firstly. A lot of interesting work now is happening outside of academia and some of the in particularly in computer science is, is all I really know that I can talk about. Um, uh, a lot of interesting novel research is happening outside of traditional organizations, which is fantastic. And a lot of the people who do do PhDs and take the traditional path are getting a lot of the value um, in their work through internships. Um, and work that they're doing with, with the real companies as well, who are better resourced. Um, so, you, you know, you could ask yourself, like, can I get the internship value without doing the PhD part? So that's a little bit of a way of addressing the FOMO. The and then the reality know. of the situation, like biology, um, so I, I used to work for biology Srinivasan and uh, I, I was working for him at a, a biotech company that he started, a genetic testing company. And when I first started, I asked him, them to fund graduate work, a graduate uh, uh, research for me, like a graduate program in that field uh, so that I could better make contributions to the company. And um, biology is like, that is a terrible, <laughs> I mean, firstly, he obviously wants me to just write software, uh, not to like understand the science. But um, one of the things that he pointed out is that uh if you do the math the like i don't know what marketing people call it exactly but like the funnel math like look at people go through the the funnel uh yeah. you are more likely to start and succeed at creating a billion dollar company uh than to get tenure at a top research university in the us so for the like number of people who start PhDs through to getting tenure at a top research company in the US, uh, compared to like starting a company and and bringing it to a billion dollars in value, the the riskier thing is the academic part. 
So yeah, it's, I, is it just because there's so many more people now competing for this? I just read the Oppenheimer biography that's going to become a movie. Have you read that one yet? No. Okay, really good. Uh, I forget the name of it, but the name, whatever the name of the biography is, what the Christopher Nolan movie is called. I'll think of it probably as I'm rambling here, but he, I, not that he wasn't a brilliant person, but somehow it almost felt as if, yes, he came from a very privileged background, but he almost stumbled into academia where there's a, there's a sort of story where he tries to stab his advisor in some way. And like, almost like, or actually, I think he tries to poison them with an apple, uh, which is reminiscent of other things in computer science history. But uh, yeah, he does this and he still is managed to, like people know about this and he's able to become this tenured professor and go on to have this career, which is making me think like, it must, maybe it was easier to go down the academic route, but uh, back then versus now. But I also think about this in the lens that to go back to the Bell Labs, my FOMO is, wow, okay, someone, in academia they don't have to deal with okrs and kpis and all this other stuff in the and you can just do research in an interesting project and maybe joseph hellerstein could be your advisor and i could be uh spinning off a cool company with him down the road so i, I do have again rosy tinted glasses about that which having read other books about it i know is unrealistic and i i wonder why i keep having i feel like we all do but we always the grass is always greener type phenomenon yeah, I guess we just don't realize the reality of it, which is that very, very few people get Joey Hellstein as an advisor and uh, very few people get to do the research that they want to in their PhDs. Like there's just, you don't get to work on the topic that you want to because it's not, it's not going to lead to publications and uh, you get kind of shoved down another path. Uh, and even when you are, you've got to like teach classes and grade papers and uh, apply for grants and go to conferences and sit on committees and stuff. And, you know, and so people are quitting academia to <laughs> go into industry so they have more research autonomy. Yeah. All right. I feel like we should rip cord. Let's do it. Uh, I also, um, do you want to turn off the recording? Do we have to? You don't want to yeah. say something uh, incriminating or embarrassing before we do that? Or is this <laughs> is just it? Maybe I already did. Um, yeah, well, let's let's join the call again. Can you pull the...